with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. How many of you are a little sleep deprived in recent uh, days, maybe the last week or so from watching the Olympics? Anyone see Lolo Jones stumble last night? Didn't that just break your heart? Um, particularly later, as you caught a glimpse of her, kind of out of public perspective, public view, leaned up against the wall. I think Bob Costas um, said it best when he said, you know, if you're an Olympic athlete, there's not always next year. It's four years to redemption. Anyway, uh, I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed the Olympics um, and have been a little sleep deprived myself. So I'm going to I'm going to hit while the iron is hot tonight and uh, so that you can stay alert after a wonderful meal and still um, have plenty of time to go home, catch a little bit of the Olympics and deprive yourself again tonight all over again. The vantage point, if you know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes, is uh, somewhat depressing. Uh, There's a repeated refrain throughout the book, summarizing the book in one word, and that word is vanity. The Hebrew word hevel can be translated to mean empty, meaningless, uh, insubstantial, inconsequential, Uh, Even, uh, in some cases, depending on the context, it can even mean absurd. It's the repeated refrain occurring over and over in every chapter of the book. It's used about 38 times, so the subject or the theme is is not uh, left in doubt. It's the perspective of a person who's, who's lived life and looked at life landlocked, if you will. They've looked at life under the sun. That's the repeated refrain as well. Life under the sun leads to emptiness. It leads to ultimate meaningless. It's a lack of deep, settled conviction and contentment. And that little phrase, life under the sun, basically means it's a, it's a life lived with self at the center. It's a life in which God's not in perspective, not rightly so. He's on the fringe. He's on the periphery. It's putting all of your eggs in the basket of this life. It's putting all of your marbles in trying to find joy and contentment and satisfaction in this life. It's a life, in other words, divorced of a, of a Godward perspective. It's a life that's stripped of a perspective in which God is seen at the center of all of life. So in that sense, Ecclesiastes is a reverse apologetic. You know, apologetics is normally a positive commendation, a positive affirmation of the truth. This reverses that. It still commends um, a God-centered perspective, ultimate life, joy, contentment found in God, but it does it by taking the reader down cul-de-sacs, dead ends, in which what had promised much actually delivers little. And so life then becomes a trivial pursuit of looking for heaven on earth. It's written from the perspective of Solomon. Uh, I, I... There are some question as to whether or not he's actually the author or whether there's an unknown narrator using Solomon as the epitome of a person who had so much going for them, who had so much material success, who had fame, who had incredible resources, who pursued so much uh, in uh, chapter 2 of the book, talking about, if I can summarize it in the, in the trite colloquial phrase, wine, women, and song, who seemingly had it all, but at the end of all of those pursuits has this gnawing observation of those pursuits. It all leads to emptiness. It leads to nothingness. It leads to vanity. And so would you follow with me 
this evening in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we'll read all the way down through verse 15. For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then what follows is balanced pairs illustrating that very opening statement. In verse 2, there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. There's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from all his toil? I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He's put eternity into man's heart Yet so he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. In a rather enigmatic way, what this um, passage is talking about is looking at life from both sides now. There's a a kind of a famous rock song. I suppose it was a, a hit in the 60s, mid to late 60s, Turn, Turn, Turn. How many of you uh, boomer types remember that song? There's another song recorded by Joni Mitchell um, called Both Sides Now. I've looked at clouds from both sides now, and still I recall life's illusions. There's, a, there's an interesting take on Joni Mitchell singing that. There's a version in which she sings it as an optimistic young lady out to change the world. And then there's another version, a slower, more reflective version, now as a middle-aged woman, who's seen so much of life, real life, from both sides now. Had the words not been um, so stunning, so startling, and yet so accurate, you would not have believed that Mickey Mantle had picked those very words to be sung at his funeral. Many of you are familiar with Mickey Mantle, arguably one of baseball's great players, a 295 lifetime batting average, over 500 home runs, the, the darling of baseball and the late 50s and uh, all the way in the early up to the mid-60s. But he intentionally selected this song as a man now in his 60s and uh, facing death and thinking about death and eternity looming large on the horizon. He picked this song to be sung at his funeral. Yesterday when I was young, the taste of life was sweet as rain upon my tongue. I lived by night and shunned the naked light of day. And only now I see how the years ran away. I used my magic age as if it were a wand and never saw the worst and the emptiness beyond. So much lay within the grasp of Mickey Mantle. 
incredible physical ability, athletic prowess, fame, the darling of the baseball world, the, the, uh, literally the hit of the New York media, um, in, incredible money for that time in addition to the great fame, and great physical gifts. But also what lay within the reach of Mickey Mantle was the bottle, a lifelong substance addiction. And at one time, even dabbling in formal religion. And everything within Mickey Mantle's grasp somehow left him empty. He came up empty with every pursuit. So that at the end of life, he intentionally selected this song, Yesterday When I Was Young, because now he's looking at both sides of life and he sees things in a different perspective. He sees that many, if not all of those opportunities actually held empty promises. And opportunities for emptiness abound with us, don't they? The culture that promises so much. Opportunities to pursue this and that, the, the latest gadget, the, the, the newest thing, the, the biggest and better thing. And yet each time we reach for it, we are left with gravelly taste in our mouth, the taste of dissatisfaction. So chapter 3 reads like a middle-aged travelogue. It's a kaleidoscope. It's the perspective of a person who's lived long enough to look back and to see life in somewhat of a more clear perspective. They've done a little living. They've had some success. They've had some failures. They know about upswings and downturns. And they know that now on the back nine of life, they're seeing life for what it really is. And I think this text leads us to this conclusion that God alone is Lord over all of life. God alone is Lord over all of life. And because God alone is the Lord over all of life, we have to find rest in His providence. We must find rest in His providence. That's really what the, the pairs are suggesting here. It's a, it's a way of life looking, looking at life poetically. It's summarized in verse 1, which he says, For everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. The word translated season refers to an appointed time, a predetermined time or occasion. Now, there's nothing in the text that urges you to determine that time for yourself. There's nothing in the text that would suggest to find that opportune time to invest your resources and your energies. There's nothing in the text that calls us to discernment, that calls us to wise business acumen or financial savvy. There's nothing in this text that calls us to alert action and activity. In fact, what the text is really saying to us is, that ultimately over all of those seasons, all of those phases of our lives, there's only one who's ultimately Lord and in charge and in control over those seasons. This passage really then is about God's activity and not ours. It's about us finding our hope and our joy and our peace and our inward sense of contentment and satisfaction in resting in God's providence and not in our own often misspent energies and attempts to control our own life. What this is saying is that in every, those, in every one of those seasons where the market is bullish or bearish, in every primary and every general election, 
even to the rhythmic beating of your heart and the lapping of the tides on the earth's seas and oceans. It's all under the sovereignty and lordship of the Lord. It's all under his hand. The point is that at every phase of your life, at every season of your life, at every season of life for your children and your grandchildren, God is steadily moving forward and accomplishing his plan and accomplishing his purposes because he is Lord in every one of those seasons and every one of those occasions. And every opportune time, there's one who's ultimately in charge and it's not us. Now, creation, if you consider creation from, from the biblical standpoint, that alone bears it out. If you go, if you go back to Genesis 1, for example, from Genesis 1 all the way down through verse 26, 11 times you'll read this repeated refrain, and God said, and God said, and God said. And as a result of the omnipotent power of God, creation came into existence by divine fiat. That is, God spoke and God commanded. So he then is the Lord over all that he's created. And he's created everything, both that which is seen and that which is unseen. So creation urges us to believe that we as creatures are not in control, ultimately, of our own lives and the seasons through which we move through lives and the seasons through which our children and our grandchildren move through as well. Creation argues it. Providence supports it. Matthew 5 says, uh, the latter part of Matthew 5 says that the Lord sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He makes the sun to rise or to shine on the evil and on the good. And 1 Timothy 4, in a, somewhat of a, uh, um, a difficult verse, difficult in that when you read it, it suggests universalism, that everyone's going to be saved in the end. But I love this verse, 1 Timothy 4, verse 10 says that God is the Savior of all men. And then there's this little comma indicating a pause, and it says especially of those who believe. Now, does it mean that, that everyone's going to be converted and come to saving faith in Christ? No, not at all. What it is saying is that in God's providence, He is ultimately the one who sends the rain, who sends the sun, behind every medical advance. Visited in the hospital late this afternoon. Gentleman in the hospital, a dear friend of mine, a faithful brother at Gracie Van, uh, uh, battling a, a very tough disease, had three IVs going, three um, antibiotics pumping into his body. It means that behind every medical advance, there's the saviorhood of a great God. When I lived in Florida, I met a man who uh, was, um, I guess he was in his 70s when I first met him, a retired gentleman, and he had uh, an unsteady gait. He was a victim of polio when he was a child. In his lifetime, there had been a polio vaccine. Even in something as simple as pasteurized milk, all of those, all of those advances, standing behind all of those advances, is the saviorhood of God in His common grace blessing, pouring out His mercy and His kindness upon a creation that has rebelled against Him, a creation now that is flawed and marked by sin. And all that I'm saying simply is this, that over all of life, wherever you look, ultimately there is one who is Lord over that season of life. And try as we might, we cannot make it ourselves. In 14 balanced pairs, summarizing 
not only the events of our lives, not just the events, but the moods associated with those events from verses 2 through 8. What the text is affirming is that God is Lord over all of that. Every one of those events, His comprehensive determination determines our times, our seasons, yours and mine, our sons and daughters, and even our grandchildren. His Lordship extends over birth and death. His plan covers health and sickness. His prerogatives govern employment and unemployment. His purpose is worked out in planting and harvesting, in war and peace, even in our laughter and our tears, what Dickens called the best of times and the worst of times. God is unfolding and steadily accomplishing His ultimate ends and purposes. And so it means that if we sow our lives only in these seasons, in the birth and the death, the planting and the harvesting, in war and peace, in laughter and joy... If our perspective is just limited to that, we will never ultimately have joy and contentment and satisfaction because we're attempting to find life in what God has created and not in the Creator Himself. One of the damaging effects of sin is what theologically is called the noetic effects of sin. All that means, what does that mean exactly? It just means that my perception the way I see life and the way I perceive life and the lens through which I view reality, the lens through which I look at creation and the lens through which I look at my life and the substance and stuff of my life has been so distorted by sin's fall that I cannot see clearly unless the Lord in grace opens my eyes and reveals to me and enables me to see life from a Godward perspective. And apart from that grace, we will take the gifts of God, the things that are represented in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we will take the gifts of God and worship them and use them for our own self-serving ends and purposes. And even as evangelical believers, if we're not cautious and careful, we will take the truth of God as He's revealed it in Scripture. And we will endeavor to use the truth of God to better manage those idols as opposed to seeing through those idols and seeing that they're not the end, they're merely the means and the source through which we worship and praise a great God who gave them. We will not and cannot find meaning and satisfaction in a fallen and flawed creation we were never intended to. We can't govern and control Anything in these pairs, we cannot guarantee that we will only ensure birth and planting and healing and building and laughing and dancing in peace. You cannot guarantee that. You cannot guarantee that in someone else's life. You cannot guarantee that you will shield yourself from death and plucking up and weeping and mourning and losing in war. So we fall on our faces before a list like this and recognize that God alone is the Lord, that life is in His hand, that my life is in His hand, that all that He gives me is in His hand, and I find rest in the sure and certain knowledge that because my life and that which He's given me and those whom I love are in His hand, I can rest in that knowledge because there's no safer place for you or me or any of us to be than in the hands of the living God. 
Second observation in the text is that because God alone is Lord over life, we wait on His promise. Uh, look again at verse 11, if you would. There's a little, there's a little statement in there about God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. The little phrase about God putting eternity into our hearts is a reference to the image of God, the Imago Dei. When man was created in, in Genesis 1 and a further explanation in Genesis 2, and God breathed into the man the breath of life, he stamped in him an indelible imprint reflecting the image of God. It's what separates you and us from the animal creation, that image of God, that non-material, not immaterial, but that non-material part of us that reflects the image of God. As a result of the fall, that reflective device, that mirror that reflects back to God, the stamp of His imprint has been cracked. It's been broken. We reflect it now perfectly. Through salvation and the ongoing work of God's grace and the truth of God, that mirror is being polished and the cracks in that mirror are being healed and being restored. But it's never fully healed, never fully restored. The pieces are never seamless, never flawless in this life. Until Christ comes back, we will continue to reflect imperfectly the image and the glory of the God who made us and who sustains us. But in that little phrase about eternity in our hearts, there's a strange dichotomy that exists and it runs through all of life. We've been made for eternity. And we can never fully find all that we long for, all that we hope for, and all that we desire in this life. We can never find ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in this life separated and broken apart from the Lord. There's a, a double-sided aspect to this. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says we have eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 9.3 also says we have madness in our hearts. We're a, we're a strange mixture. You've seen it in your kids, haven't you? That little strange mixture. So cuddly, so lovable. When they're first born, they're so dependent and they're just so cute and adorable. Um, something happens at two, an alien being comes in and takes possession and uh, nothing short of an exorcism will, uh, will, will solve that dilemma. It, listen, the seeds of that strange behavior at two years old, it's been there all along. It's even stranger at 20, but the seeds of that have been there all along. It's not as if, you know, you think, what's happened? Believe me, it's been there all along. There's that double-sided aspect of life, made for eternity, made to reflect the image of God, and yet, as a result of sin, as a result of the fall, I am also of the dust and also of the earth. I want you to follow what I'm saying. Those double-sided pairs confirm it. We plant and we harvest. We live and we die. We enjoy life in those within our circle of family and friends, but we also tell them goodbye because death ultimately or in Christ's return will separate us till the resurrection. We enjoy times of great laughter, but there's also periods of unrelieved weeping. We enjoy peace and prosperity, but there are downturns. There's war. There's conflict. There's a feeling of despair. Creation confirms it as well. The hand of creation reflects the power of God. All of creation Psalm 19 says, declares His glory. 
But look, when you're out there pruning the flowers, there's thorns on those roses. And when you're out there trimming the bushes, there's weeds that are growing up, vines coming up through the bushes. When you're out there working in the yard, you could get into poison ivy and have a, a real itchy outbreak. Um, you see squirrels playing in your backyard, rabbits playing in your backyard. You could also step on a snake out there. Brent was telling me that he was jogging. Uh, I believe this was spring, early summer, late spring, early summer. He was jogging in Carville and, and on the trail that he was running on, came across a, a, a three or four foot copperhead. So in the beauty of nature and running. See, that's just one more reason why you shouldn't jog. Uh, that's, that's all I needed right there. That's, I was toying with it till I heard that and I thought, no. Um, so in the midst of all of this glory and all of this kindness, the gentle breezes of summer, the light breeze of fall, that same wind is a typhoon and a hurricane somewhere else. Are you, are you following what I'm saying? There's a double side to life. Two sides. Now here's where we get skewed, and this is where the noetic effects, the distortion of sin takes place. We put our hopes in this life. We put all of our confidence in this life. We bank on this life. We lean on this life. All of our energies and aspirations and times and resources and thoughts and worries and planning and daytimers and palm pilots are all sometimes so rooted in this life that ultimately will fail us. It will ultimately disappoint us and let us down because it was never intended since the fall to be a cause of support and confidence and joy and peace. Never intended to be a source of hope and optimism. We look at life realistically. We see it for what it is. But we hope in the living God. Our peace, our joy, our confidence, our comfort, our consolation is in Him. The double side of life, it suggested in this psalm, protects us from error. It, it keeps us from idolatry, even as believers. It keeps us from idolatrously pinning our hopes on this life, thinking that we, we can extract all that we need from this life. It keeps us from, from hoping that the world is going to evolve, that somehow the person you elect in November is going to straighten out America. It also keeps you from becoming a monastic, from fleeing the world and retreating from the world and building a fortress mentality. You see life and you see the world through the lens of Scripture. And you recognize that there's a flaw that runs through it. We use it wisely. But we use it in dependence upon the Lord and in our hope and our confidence in Him. There's a, a given promise here in verses 12 through 15 in which the Lord promises to restore wholeness to life. But it's not now. It's not now. It's in the future. And all of those gifts, the, the harvest, the laughter the joy, the peace, the prosperity, the blessing. You know what all of those things ultimately do? They point us to a future in which there is no war, there is no famine, there is no death, there is no disease. But they don't point us to this life. They really point us to the life to come. It's just because of my flaws and my fallenness 
I bank on it now. I want it now. We're not intended to have it now. It's just a little bit of taste of what awaits those who know and love the Lord Jesus. We lost it. We lost paradise through Adam's disobedience. We can never have fully in this life all that we long for. We live in a time that's called the now and not yet. We're, we're in a, an in-between times. We have eternal life now. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit now, the guarantee, the down payment, the deposit of the greater things to come. But I long for more. I long for fullness of joy. I long for unending peace and satisfaction. I long to see the unrivaled glory of the one true and living King who upholds all things by the power of His Word. And we have the promise of regaining all of that and more through another Adam's obedience, even the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's limited measured gifts now promise more to come in verse 13. But that's all it is now is a promise. It's not the cause of hope, not the cause of optimism and joy. We use it wisely, we use it loosely, but we don't put all of our marbles in it. And then finally, another quick observation here in this text in closing. Because God is Lord alone of life, we receive His provision with gratitude. There's a divinely given provision for each of our lives. In each season of life, God reveals Himself as faithful and as the source and so on. God's grain runs through the timber of our lives so that in wise reflective moments, in moments of thoughtfulness, in moments of of thinking and meditating upon the Scripture and, and looking at life through the lens of Scripture, we see the hand of God. We see it in His providence. In every open door and every closed door, in every circumstance and event, standing behind that is a faithful Father who loves us with an everlasting love. We see it in all of God's gifts. And all of that kindness of God is ultimately based not on merit, not on achievement, not on how long your devotions were today, not in if you're seven days straight now, you've been having private time with the Lord. It's ultimately all based on grace, as verse 13 suggests. It's God's gift to man. See, everything we strive for, everything we work so hard for, everything on that master plan list, it's ultimately God's grace and kindness that you have any of it. Not because of your great acumen, not because of your great skill, not because you're such a visionary. God put blow on it tomorrow and it's all gone because He's the Lord of the planting and the harvesting, the Lord of life and the Lord of death. Chapter 3 reads like a personal, thoughtful reflection of a middle-aged man. It's a kaleidoscope. I could be that man. Thinking back about yesterday when I was young, when the taste of youth was still fresh upon my tongue. And now as a middle-aged man, I see more clearly that my imagined control has been an illusion. That I've been in the hands of God who alone is Lord over all of life this whole time. Therefore, might the Lord give us grace to rest in His providence, 
to receive His gifts with gratitude, to recognize and receive His provision with thanksgiving. And looking at both sides now, we see life now as not being in our hands. Life is in His hands, and it's under His hand. And so this leads us to real genuine rest that the times and seasons, they're His. And though I don't always understand what His hands are doing, from what I know of Him in Scripture, from what Calvary reveals of our Father's heart, we can trust Him. We can be grateful for what He has provided and trust Him for yet more. And we can ask for wisdom to discern what season are we really in and how would the Lord have us to live even now in this place and this season of life. Father, we thank You that You are indeed a great and gracious Father. You are so much more than our minds can conceive, so much more than our hearts can imagine. And You've been incredibly kind and faithful and gracious to us. I think most of my life I lived and I still struggle with a vain illusion of control. But this text reminds me that I'm not my own, that I'm yours, and that I can trust you for whatever circumstance or season of life I'm in this evening. Would you take these truths tonight, Father? Would you apply them to our lives, to our hearts, our homes? Might we find encouragement in them? And might they point us to a faithful Savior, even the Lord Jesus Christ, by whose life, by whose blood, by His resurrection and intercession, we're assured that our only comfort in both life and death is found in you and therefore found in Him. All of this we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.